Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So, one of the elephants in the room is what has been revealed over the last couple of weeks in Southern Baptist life. That which was in darkness has been brought to the light. And the convention which meets in a little more than a week in California, you know the Southern Baptist Convention is the messengers who meet on an annual basis. They don't represent the churches, they go as messengers. They don't take a representative vote from us. We've got four messengers going. But they certainly express, I think, the will of God as it's uh, identified in the church. And they're going to be hearing, they're going to be receiving the report that has examined how Southern Baptist um, entities have dealt with the issue of sexual abuse over the past few years. So there I've said it. If you didn't know that was going to happen, it's going to happen. And one of our prayers is that the messengers will receive it in the proper way and that Southern Baptists will take appropriate action. It's very fitting, I think, that we've had the two messages that we have today on the subject that we have on Pentecost. This morning, it was holy means holy. Sometimes we're dismissive about holiness and sanctification. And we've been looking at worship on Sunday morning, and that, as you heard uh, tonight, uh, Noah talking about, it has not only an individual application, but also a corporate application. So we, we walk in a worthy manner, and that's a form of our worship, wherever we go, and then we come together liturgically and we worship. And that's typically what we call worship. So if we have, if we have an, maybe some difficulty in that area, it's usually that we only think of worship as being something that we do one hour a week when we come for gathered worship, but we know that it's how we behave, what we say, where we go, what we do in the week, too. And that bears on the issue that we're dealing with at the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not just what's preached from the pulpit. It's not just what's seen publicly one hour a week or two hours a week or five hours a week, but what we do. This evening, it takes a different kind of slant. We typically think of discipline and that sort of thing and, and uh, all in the church sort of an individ- as an individual problem. You know, uh, these uh, failures that we are hearing about are individual failures, but they're also corporate failures. We have to be careful that we don't dismiss it and excuse it by saying, well, you know, every church is a congregational entity. Nobody's over the church except Christ. Uh, There's no way to control that. Well, we may not be able to control it, but there's a way to deal with it. Um, And that's what we're in the midst of right now. The message tonight has to do with cultivating holiness that also involves dealing with those problems as we find them emerging in the church. When there's sin in the body, how do we deal with it? When there are problems in the body, how do we deal with it? And so that's an extension of what we were talking about this morning. It's Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. How do we address 
what I would call scandal or problems in the body. So it's a very pertinent question. How should we deal with the report on sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention and how it has been dealt with in the past? Um, last week's message, uh, Joel reminded us that Paul told the Ephesians that we have, we have to be conscious about putting away the old way and putting on the new self. And that's in preparation to cultivate holiness, which is this week's message. Dealing, and that has to do with dealing with divisive problems and sin in the church as we move toward cultivating holiness. And next week, Kevin is going to be delivering the message from Ephesians 5, the beginning of the chapter, where he talks about purging then immorality and impurity from the body. So there's a pattern there. You know, how does the world deal with scandal? How does the world deal with scandal? Uh, well, I'm going to use a model here that might sound kind of weird at first, but Kuba Ross's model on death and dying is, I think, a pretty good one. You probably know about it, but if you don't, uh, the model speaks about five stages. We say of grief, but it's more than just grief. Whenever somebody loses a loved one, or if you go through a divorce, or some kind of major traumatic incident in your life. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention is going through a traumatic incident right now. And there will be PTSD from that. And there is PTSD amongst individuals who have been victimized. And we need to understand that. You know, the five stages are what? Denial at first? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> oh, well, that couldn't be happening. No. Um, and a part of that denial is cover-up. That's a very natural and normal thing for us to, to do. Next is anger public outrage. Next is bargaining. That usually involves also litigation, criminal charges, and civil suits. Depression that follows from that, the long-term effect of sexual abuse on victims. But not only that, churches. I can't tell you how many people that have become aware of the report that say, I can't believe that this has been in our midst. Can, can you believe this? And they, they reflect about themselves as being Southern Baptist and the image that it, has, that, that it bears. And then you finally come to acceptance, not acceptance necessarily of the bad behavior. And you don't necessarily say that death is good, altogether good. But you then reset. You reset to a kind of new norm. You know, there are a couple of problems the way that uh, the public deals with this, frankly, I think. Scandal. There's a worldly way to deal with it. You know, uh, certainly... People try to cover it up, hide it. Uh, but I think in the second and third stages, anger and bargaining, we really see it being problematic. You know, you stop and think about anything that, like that that's happened over the past um, few years. Just one example, the Me Too movement. I'm, I'm not saying that everything about that's wrong. It, it, it has to do with many of the issues that we're talking about in the SBC. Okay. But whenever there's a social movement like that, it, there can be some exaggerations. You know what I mean? So you come to the anger stage, and it really bothers me whenever we get in the middle of one of these kind of social movements and, and, and issues in crisis. There's always a media sensationalism that goes along with it. You know what I'm talking about? And there's a kind of a public voyeurism. We want to know all more and more about it. It becomes very gossipy, rumors and lies. Uh, there's the Bader-Meinhof syndrome, too. You familiar with that? They were a communist group in uh, Germany back in the 70s, 80s, 
they bombed things, blew things apart. I was at um, USERA headquarters in 1984, I think it was 84, when they blew up, they tried to kill the commander of United States Army Europe. Um, and they locked down all the posts <coughs> that day. Well, the point here is nobody had ever heard of Bayer Meinhof until they heard about it. And then what happened? Everywhere you looked, you saw it in the news, you saw it here, you saw it there. Something that you didn't know about yesterday, the point is that something you didn't know about yesterday, you become aware of it. And then tomorrow, guess what? You see it everywhere. That's the syndrome. Well, it's sort of like this, you know? When sexual abuse and those sorts of things are hidden and we don't know about it, and then it's revealed, then all of a sudden we see it everywhere. It becomes pervasive. In the anger stage, there's also usually an overreaction. We become overly sensitive and overly fearful and paranoid when there's not always necessarily a cause to do so. For example, in the wake of this, we have to be careful that pastors don't distance themselves from people and become cold and isolated. You know, we need to be normal, warm, affectionate. A hug is okay. We just need to be careful how we hug. You know, but you see what I'm saying. Sometimes we overreact when we come to the bargaining stage. You know, the way that uh, the, pu the public and and the world deals with it is uh, they go beyond justice to vengeance. Uh, they politicize the issues. And usually one side of the political spectrum or the other latches onto it and they begin to preach political correctness instead of what is right and just. And sometimes they're ad hominem slurs. You know, for example, out of the Me Too movement, it's not a feminist movement, but if we're not careful, then all of a sudden every man is guilty until proven what? Innocent. You know what I'm talking about. Am I being too transparent about this? Um, and then we get, we get to the bargaining stage, litigation. Are there some people that exploit that for greed and profit? Absolutely. So you see, the way the world deals with it is not a good model necessarily for us to follow. Paul gives us a good model in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, about um, <clears throat> how to deal with this at the end of the fourth chapter as a body. He says in verse number 25, Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, Speak truth, each, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we're parts of, of one another. <clears throat> Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing his own, with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, the context of this, Paul's concerns in the book of Ephesians, he has some concerns in the background. One is clearly, when we look at chapter 2, maintaining unity in a diverse body. Greek Gentiles and Jewish 
uh, Christians and, and Jewish Christians, the multiple ethnicities there and backgrounds, maintaining a unity in that diverse body. Uh, also, there's a possible threat in the background of an emphasis of heretical teachers. We saw that in chapter 3. We don't have any evidence that they were in the body, but he warns them about their coming. Another concern is, and we're in the middle of this right now, is the need for taking a young church that has been pagan in the recent past and moving them to Christian maturity. Not just that they're believers, but maturing them in Christ. And then there's always the threat of reverting to their pagan ways. We see this four times. <clears throat> Pardon me. This is the fourth time that Paul has addressed this issue. That is, they were sinful, they had sinful behavior in the past, in their pagan ways. And it's a potential to reemerge, and it could be a future problem. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And then later in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and very briefly, and then last week we saw uh, Joel dealing with it, verses 17 through 19, and then tonight. So it's not a new thing that he's dealing with. The purposes of, of tonight's message that he's given us then are to cultivate Christian holiness. Now, this isn't just for individuals. You know, that's one of the problems that, that we've had in church is that we think of sin being an individual problem. We don't think about how it affects the body. So he's talking about this in terms of building not only holiness individually, but also building holiness in the body. The, body, the, the church is the what? The body of Christ. It's, it's, it's the person of Christ in human form. And we need to be concerned about developing and cultivating holiness as a body, not just as individuals. And secondly, a purpose is to maintain sanctity and truth, holiness and truth, having put in Christ. And we've, we've seen a couple of passages recently that deal with that. Uh, last week, we were told that we have this truth that resides in him, so then how do we maintain that? Uh, and then the passage last week ended with that phrase, holiness and truth. So how do we maintain truth in the body of Christ? And then finally, another purpose tonight is to deal with anything, anything at all that diminishes holiness. And that may not be necessarily personal sin. It may be a problem that crops up in the church. It may be tension that's in the church. It may be divisiveness in the church that you may not be able to trace specifically to one or two people's sin, although it's usually there as that causes the divisiveness. But this is also dealing with problems. So tonight's message is not only about cultivating holiness to deal with specific sins, it's also to cultivate holiness as a guard against anything that's disruptive to the body and prevents that growth. I'd outline this passage this way. Two things. Ah, you're surprised, aren't you? Two things. Not three. But guess what? There, there are two longer points than usual. Okay, so the, uh, the first one, verses 25 through 27, it's pretty clear. What he's saying here is deal honestly with your problems. Notice I didn't say sin. Sin is a problem. So it's broader than just sin. Deal honestly with, with your sin in your body. Southern Baptist Convention, deal honestly with the sin that is in your body. But also deal with the attendant problems. And there are a lot of problems that will come out of that. And then secondly, in verses 28 through 32, avoid sins. Avoid sins that affect the unity, that destroy the unity. Okay? 
So deal honestly with your problems, verses 25 through 27. What kinds of problems? What kind of problems? Well, anything that stunts, when we look back at what we've covered so far in Ephesians, I think these problems are anything that, that, that stunts uh, growth in Christ, okay? Because we're called as a body to grow in Christ. Uh, so in 4.13, the message that I, sp- I spoke on about three weeks ago, uh, we are called to become mature in Christ if it prevents us from becoming mature in Christ. Uh, a couple weeks ago, then, we, we heard about how to, last week, Joel talked about how to learn Christ. That was a very enlightening, eye-opening way that uh, Joel explained that. It's not just to learn about Christ, but it's to learn him in his ways. Like when Paul says to the Corinthians, I came to you, not speaking fine-sounding words, so that I might know about Christ. No, he says what? So that I might know Christ. It inhibits that. If it prevents being filled with his fullness, we talked about that in chapter 319. So anything that stunts the growth, anything that stops us from fulfilling our God-called purpose, and we found that at the beginning of chapter 4. So we are to walk in a manner worthy of our what? Calling. So anything that prevents that. It's anything that compromises our witness. And that's one of the things that we really have to consider at, um, in California at the SBC meeting. The world is watching, and we bear witness to how we receive the report and how we respond to it. This is dealt with in Chapter 2 where uh, it, it talks about we, we have a responsibility as witnesses as a unified body. And also, whenever he, he talks about the possibility of our backsliding, and he does that in Chapters 2 and 4. Um, there are two main problems that are usually manifested in the body about which he's speaking here. One could be unresolved sin. And he deals with that specifically when he talks about lying in the church and about the way we speak to each other. The other is any disagreement that we have between brothers and sisters. And tonight, in the first part of this message, where we talk about how, how we then deal with the problems that we've got. He does three things. He, 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 says we ought to, or he says we ought to do three things. We ought to first clear the air, make it very clear what the problem is. Secondly, we need, once we know what the problem is, we must speak the what? Speak the truth. And then finally, we have to always be careful. Because no matter how well-intentioned we are, we also have to deal with the master manipulator and deceiver who will use anything that we say or do, no matter how well-intentioned, to twist it and distort it. Beware of the diablos. It's, an, it's, it's an interesting. He doesn't use the word Satan there. He use the, uses the term devil. So first of all, clear the air. This has to do with dealing with problems. Clear the air. He says, well, the first thing you do is eliminate falsehood in verse number 25. You know, therefore, and that therefore, you know what it means. I don't really need to repeat this. You've heard it a million times. Therefore refers to what went in the past. But it's not just everything that went in the past. I think here he's talking about, therefore, as we reject those pagan ways in which we have been involved, because that's what Joel talked about last week, put away the old ways, put on the new Christ. Well, he's done that twice. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he talked about the old pagan ways, put them away, and then what Joel talked about last week, putting it away. Therefore, having put away the pagan ways, lay aside falsehood. This word lay aside 
is actually the same word that's found in verse number 22. Chapter 4, 22. And what's it talking about there? As we put on Christ, remember Joel said when you come in from the field last week and you're all sweaty and dirty and everything, you're ready to sit down and eat or ready to go to bed? You don't just hop into bed with your dirty clothes on. You do what? You strip it off and you clean yourself up. Well, that's the same word that's used here. Strip it off. That is, strip away the falsehood. Colossians 3.8 has a, a long catalog of sins that follows in that passage. Uh, and that catalog of sins, before he deals with each of those sins collectively, he says, strip all these away. You know, falsehood isn't just lying. Now, he, he does say, he does use the word in the modern translations, lie here. But the word actually is falsehood. It's not just saying that which is untrue. It's sometimes behaving the way that is untrue. It's anything that is not consistent with the way, the what, the truth, and the life. So falsehood, anything that deceives, that is not genuine, anything that contrasts with the truth about which he spoke in verse 21, we have the truth of Christ in us. In verse 24, last week's passage, ended with speaking about not just holiness, but holiness in truth. So anything that goes against that, we must deal with openly and strip it away. And there are two sources that have already been identified that, that, we, that, that might be a cause for this. In verse 14 of this chapter, it's pretty obvious. There are false teachers who practice trickery, craftiness, and, and deceit. That's a source of untruth. But also, too, in verse 22, the lusts of what? Deceit. And that really takes us back then to those two passages in chapter 4 and chapter 2 where he talks about the old ways. So it may have to do with false teaching, but it also may have to do with the old self. When we're called to put on the new self, put away any kind of falsehood that comes with the old self. We're to shed that vice. In Colossians 3, I mentioned where he lists those catalogs of sins to the church at Colossae. There's a parallel passage to this. He says almost the same thing. He says, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. Don't be false to one another. Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and you have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge. Remember last week we talked about the renewal of the mind. According to the image, that is, of Christ, who is the truth, of the one who created him. So what's the motivation for putting away this falsehood? For not allowing falsehood. Well, one of the motivations is implied, I think. Because we put on the new self, we need to be true to Christ, don't we? That's implied here. We need to become more like Christ. But there's, some explicit, there's an explicit motive here. Put away falsehood, and what does he say? For we are what? What does it say? We are members of one body. We are members not just of one body. We're members of what? one another. So we're not just in a body, we're interconnected. We're part of one another. You know, that kind of reminds us of the image of 1 Corinthians 12. We're not just all part of a body, and we don't just all have individual gifts, but those gifts work together in one body, and who is the head? Christ is the head. You know, see, this explicit motivation, we're members of one another, has to do with integrity and respect and peace. The integrity is we're called to be holy. We constitute the body of Christ, and there is no place. There's no place in the body of Christ for what? For lying, for falsehood. 
He's the head. If we're in his body, there's no place for it. So it has to do with integrity. It has to do with respect and accountability. Uh, we owe it to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to respect one another and, frankly, not pull the wool over each other's eyes. Okay? We owe that to each other. It's a matter of mutual honesty to be truthful with each other. Now, I'm not going to go into another sermon that we could preach about transparency and being wise as serpents but innocent as doves about that. Does that mean that you tell everybody in the church about everything that you've been thinking this past week? Don't do that, okay? If a man lusts after a woman, the last thing that he needs to do is stand up in front of the body and say, I was lusting after her this week, you know? Some of these things need to be done how? Individually. And not everything that you have thought that is sinful, necessarily. The one person we must confess it to is him, is Jesus Christ. Yeah, for forgiveness. So I'm, I'm not saying that all of a sudden we just become transparent and just explode everything and we take all of our dirty laundry out and just expose it to the whole world. You, you see, see what I mean there about mutual respect. Uh, it's not respectful, though, that if we know there's sin in the body and we try to cover it up and we're not honest about it. And then it has to do with peace and prosperity. Zechariah put it this way. He made it a condition for the coming peace of Zion. He said, peace is going to come to Zion someday. But here's the condition for it. He said, these are the things which you should do. Zechariah 8, 16. Speak the truth to one another. That's the first thing he says. Be truthful with one another. Judge with truth. And judgment for peace in your gates. So truth is so important. There are two kinds of falsehood that I think we're talking about tonight. One is doctrinal falsehood, and the other is moral falsehood. It's obvious about the doctrinal uh, falsehood because he's talked about it with those that are authors of trickery and deceit in, in verse 14. It's also an indirect reminder when you go back to that beginning of chapter 2 where he says, this is your former way of life. And he said, at that time, you were not walking according to the truth, and you were children of disobedience and children of wrath. So part of the source of that is falling prey to doctrinal truth and, and being children, being immature in our understanding of what God's truth is. But there's also moral falsehood. And this is, as he's talked about in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. We just covered that not long ago. The Gentiles, you walked in the way of the Gentiles, the pagans, in an immoral way. And they are deceived. Don't continue to be deceived. Remember, the, he, said, he said about this moral falsehood. Feudal minds, darkened with understanding and ignorant, hardened hearts, callous, indecent behavior, greedily practicing impurity, that's moral falsehood. We have to be careful, he says, that we don't revert to the immoral behavior that is identified with our former life. Now, now some of you don't remember a former life. <laughs> You've been Christ's followers for almost all of your lives. You came to know the Lord at a very young age. This morning, Rocky shared with us a different story, didn't he? He said, I was this way, and I remember what it was like. And that's good for us to hear those stories, isn't it? because it reminds us that there is a former way of life even if we don't remember explicitly what it was because by the grace of God some of you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ before you became steeped in all of those kinds of moral sins but there he says those kinds those things were sins transgressions lust of the flesh desires of the flesh and of the mind 
being led by the author of deception, that is, the prince of the power of the air. So two kinds of falsehood. One is doctrinal, and we have to be careful about heresy in the body, and the other is moral misbehavior. And he says, speak truth, though angry, in verses 25 through 26. He says, be angry, but without sin. So speak the truth, be angry, without sin. Speak truth, one of you, with his neighbor, each with his own neighbor. Uh, that tells us that we need to address all the problems that are unresolved in the body, if it affects the body. And we do this honestly and transparently. We do it directly and forthrightly. It reminds us, though, of, of how we need to do this. This is a matter of discipline. Okay, so you know where I'm going with this. When, whenever you mention discipline in the New Testament, you go back to the Gospels, where is the, not proof text, but where is the central text? Matthew what? 18. Yeah. And it says what? You go what? One to another. You go one on one. And then if that doesn't work, you do what? You bring somebody with you, and if the person is still unrepentant, then you, then you bring it to the church. Um, this is about church discipline. And it begins with private individual interaction, one-on-one. -on -one. You notice what he says here. Speak truth how each one of you with his neighbor, it begins individually. And then it recalls the, uh, the injunction of, of Christ in, in Mark 5 that when we bring our gift to the altar and we recognize that somebody has something against us, then we're to do what? Individually. We're to leave our gift at the altar and do what? Go and immediately be reconciled and then offer our gift individually. But then it does mean that the body has to deal with it. We, we, we deal with it by not sweeping it under the rug. In Ephesians 5, sometimes Paul says it's, necessarily, it's necessary actually to expose it publicly. So it may begin privately, but there comes a time, sometime for whatever reason, that it needs to be exposed publicly. Ephesians 5 says this, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, bring them into the light. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them, and he's speaking about those that are uh, falling prey, as we will see next week, to impurity and immorality. Paul had to do that in Corinth, didn't he? He didn't just keep the issue about the incestuous man quiet. He finally said he had to bring it out in the open. And, you know, um, even if it's not a matter of great, grave gravity in terms of, of quote, sinfulness of the act. Sometimes public exposure is necessary. If a person is unrepentant of their sin and it affects the body, it may not be an incestuous relationship. It may not be that uh, notorious. It may be necessar necessary for us to bring it out into the open if it's unresolved and it causes problems in the church. The rationale for this is it corrupts the body if it's not dealt with. It festers. The image of the body, then, is damaged. It affects not only the church, but, boy, have we seen this in the last couple of weeks. It affects the way the what? World looks at the body. It also contributes to disunity. Unresolved contention in the church, it'll fester. That's one kind of word picture you can have. Or it can create tension. There's another word picture for you. And eventually it will cause either an explosion or division. He says, be angry. Wow, Psalm 4.4. <laughs> Actually, Psalm 4.4 says this, tremble. It's that kind of anger. <laughs> tremble. 
yet without sin. Be angry, yet without sin. It may be, not always, but it may be on occasion that it is all right for us to display righteous anger. There, you know, some scholars say, well, that's not what's really meant here. You know, he's just, it's a hyperbole. He doesn't mean really get angry. He's just using it as an overstatement. Uh, some would say he's using just a statement from the Psalms as a kind of ironic statement. Yeah, get angry. In other words, don't get, ang- don't get angry. I think it means what it says. I think that there are times when it is appropriate for us to display righteous anger. God does. God loves sin. No, God what? He hates sin. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 5, time and time again, he hates it and he displays his wrath or his wrath against it. Jesus displayed his anger, didn't he? Sure. Great example is when? In the temple, sure. Uh, God hates, we, we need to let the world know, and we need to let each other know that God hates sin. So sometimes we need to display that kind of right, righteous anger, not that God can't, but sometimes he expresses it through us. And we need to, we, we need to remember that we don't, we, we don't kowtow to the ways of the world, but we need to remember that the world's watching us. And some sin demands moral outrage. You with me? And when they find out that we have it in our body and we haven't been dealing with it and we're not outraged about it and the world is outraged about it, then they say, well, what kind of a a religion is that? So sometimes it demands moral outrage. And he says, and yet without sin, that's pretty obvious. Don't let it then contribute to sin in your life. What kind of sin? You might get angry and it might lead to vengeful retribution. Vengeance is whose? It's, it's the Lord. It might cause us to harbor ill will and hold it in and be unforgiving. And Jesus says, when you stand praying, think about it. And if you really want to forgive, no, he says, what? Forgive that person. You know, we have all these rules about forgiveness in our mind. Well, I'm not going to do it unless they come to me and ask for forgiveness. No, Jesus says, if you're standing praying and you have a relationship with the Father through me and you are angry at somebody else and they've harmed you, hurt you, and they need to be forgiven, then don't wait. Do it what? Right then. Why? So that your heavenly Father might forgive you. Uh, don't let this sin then uh, maybe even develop into the... Have you ever seen this attitude? Well, everybody else is doing it, so what? Well, do it too. You just do it out of spite. I know that sounds kind of silly, but there are people that behave that way. And then there's also the problem of yielding to temptation to Satan. Letting him get his tender hooks in us. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is a kind of explosive wrath or wrath. It's not the normal word that is used for anger or gay. It's got a prefix to it that that makes it different. It is a violent kind of irritation that is explosive. It's like a seething cauldron that you turn the temperature on the the stove up, and it boils, and it boils, and it boils. You turn the temperature down a little bit, and it finally finally, uh, recedes. It's that kind of anger. It just explodes. Well, that's inappropriate. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not always. Okay, but we have to be very careful that the sun doesn't go down on it. In Isaiah 54, it speaks of God being this way. It says, Isaiah 54, 8, and an outburst of anger. Now, it's not the same Greek word because this is in Hebrew here, but, and I haven't looked at the Septuagint, but my guess is it's the same word in the Septuagint. In an outburst of anger, God says, I hid my face from you. And then he says, for a moment, for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, with the chesed, with that, that, that love that I have for you, I will have compassion on you. 
So if, if God then has an outburst of anger, but then he relents and lets go of it, we need to do so too. And Jesus for, commands us to forgive immediately. We may be outraged in our feeling about what somebody's done to us, and that's normal, but then we need to forgive them immediately. Lingering anger only adds to, and here we just use a very human approach to this, and only does what? It adds to human emotional stress in our own lives. Can it damage your health? Absolutely. It erects a barrier then to reconciliation in the body. You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever known people or have you ever been one of those people? I don't care how much they ask for forgiveness. I'll, I'll say I forgive them, but I'm not going to get over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's a barrier to reconciliation. And then it gives the devil leverage in our lives. And that's what he talks about next in verse number 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. The diabolus, the word that is used here, is for the great slanderer. Hmm. He will use sin in the body to slander the body, to accuse the body, to prosecute the body, and if possible, to execute the body. That's what it means in this term diabolus here. The prince of the power of the air, spoken about in chapter 2. The author behind the deceit and trickery in verse 14 of this chapter. And the one that darkens the understanding of the self that, that Joel talked about last week. It is he about whom uh, Paul speaks here. Don't give him the opportunity. That word really means place. It's not so much circumstance as place. Don't give him a place in your life. Another way of putting it is don't give him a toehold. Don't let him put, plant a foot on the beach of your soul. He will exploit the smallest opportunity. Give him a micro centimeter and he'll take a thousand miles. He tempts to pervert godly reconciliation as we do this, as we, as we really try to deal with problems in the church. Is it possible that even when we try to do this the right way, that, that Satan will find a crevice or a crack or a way in what we're doing and exploit it? You better believe it. Is he going to find ways as we deal with this problem in the Southern Baptist Convention to tell us, well, you can't do it this way, you can't do it that way, you know, be careful about it. He will do it. Uh, what, what does he do? Well, and whenever we have problems in the church, sometimes he encourages us to seek vengeance and not justice. Hmm. Sometimes he causes us to have harsh and judgmental attitudes about things that people have done to us. Sometimes we know that somebody's done something wrong, and we actually use that as a kind of spiritual blackmail, emotional blackmail. I won't, I won't, tell, I won't tell people what you did, but you know that I have what? control over you. Some, another way is sweeping it under the rug. Don't deal with it honestly. To clutch our woundedness. Have you ever known people to do that? Uh, you know, somebody asks for forgiveness and the other person is reluctant to forgive because they want to hold on to that woundedness. It's a victim mentality. But let me tell you what happens to a victim mentality. Hebrews tells us it causes a root of what? bitterness that grows up within us and then you know sometimes what he does is he tempts us to think about everybody else's sin and to ignore what jesus said look at the what the log that is in your own eye okay so deal with the problems honestly straightforwardly in in the body and then secondly he talks about avoiding sins that destroy unity in verses 28 through 31 paul cataloged many many sins in his letters 
uh, in his 13 letters, I counted them. I, I may not have counted all of them, and I'm not going to list all of them. It would take me another 15 minutes to do it. But in seven of his letters, he gives catalogs of mostly moral sins. They're not all moral sins by individuals. In Romans 1, I'll mention the passages. In Romans 1, 19 sins are listed there that have to do with the depravity of unrighteousness. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, he lists 10 sins that have to do with the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom. Things like sensual immorality and impurity and homosexual behavior and that sort of thing. In Galatians 5, he talks about works of the flesh, 15 of them. And those are to be contrasted with the fruit of what? Spirit, which follows right after that. Fruit is singular, right? Yeah. In Colossians 3, we mentioned this a moment ago, six sins that are earthly things that we need to put to death in our lives. In 1 Timothy 1, eight sins of lawlessness and disobedience. 2 Timothy 3, 19 arrogant attitudes that we're going to see in the last days. And if you want to see a picture of the last days society <laughs> today, what it looks like, go back and read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Lovers of self, <laughs> lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. And then also Ephesians 5. Next week, Kevin's going to get into this. Impurity and immorality, lustful sins. And, 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 it, and I'm glad those are there because they point out specifically things that we individuals have to be guarded about, mostly, you know, moral kind of uh, failures. But here Paul's not so much discussing that. He's discuss discussing sin that affects the unity of the body, the whole body. And, and all of those others do too, but here he focuses on that and how we cultivate holiness not only as individuals, but how we do it as a body. That is, those things that contribute to an unruly atmosphere and undisciplined lives that disturb the unity of the body, that cause us to walk in a manner unworthy of Christ, the truth that is in us, and cause us to walk in a manner that is unworthy of our calling. And he focuses on two examples. What are they? Don't steal and don't lie. Unwholesome words. Paul's pattern here, he, on each one of these, he talks about four things. He first exhorts against the sin. Don't do it. Then he gives a remedy. Then he shows the effects on the unity of the body if we don't deal with it or if we do those sins. And then he gives, go the extra mile. What do you then do to edify the body instead of doing this? So he begins with stealing. How does stealing affect the church? But this, may, this may sound rather strange. You know, steal in the church? He says, here, here's the exhortation. If you're stealing, stop it. Well, this raises a scandalous question. How can there be stealing in the church? You know, I was looking at the, this morning, somebody didn't put their offering in the, uh, in the plate. And they came down and said, where do I put it? And I said, well, it's right over there. It's, it's right under the, the, uh, the pew, you know. That's where the, the deacons put it. And, and he, so he went over there, pulled it out, put it in, set it on the pew there. We trust each other, don't we? There's cash in there. Mm, might somebody in the body be a thief and walk by and take that $20 bill? That might happen. I don't see it happening at Gamble Street. But there's no accounting for human weakness, <laughs> sin. Outright stealing, yeah. Christians aren't perfect. And there might be a thief amongst us. Uh, but you know, there are other ways that we thieve, aren't there? 
For example, not pulling our own weight in the body. That's stealing. We have gifts. We have those things that God has given us to do in the body, and he calls us to participate in the body to help it. And if we don't do those things and somebody else has to come in and fill in the gap in the void where God's called us to fulfill a calling, then, then guess what? We're robbing from the body. You know, he, he talks about this to the Thessalonians, or is it the Thessalonians? Which is it, Joe? Yeah. Uh, you know, they were, they, some of them were saying, you know, the Lord's going to come back. He's going to come back. So I'm going to stop what? I'm going to stop working. And Paul said, you know what? If you don't work, you don't what? You don't eat. You're stealing from the body. Because you see, somebody, somebody's got to provide you food. And if you're not working for it, then you're taking food out of the mouths of somebody else and their family in order to give it for you. Not pulling your own weight. Um, it could be one of the things in Paul's day, and maybe even today, rich people in the body exploiting the poor, exploiting their, their, their slaves and their households, uh, being unfair to employees as a representative of Christ that harms the body. It could have been unfair business practices, maybe members of the body price-fixing things, or it could have been something as blatant as Ananias and Sapphira. Remember? Acts, the fifth chapter, they promised that they were going to give, sell land, give the money to, to the, the, the body or the ministry, and they did what? They cheated. It could be any number of things. It's not just taking money out of the offering plate. The remedy for this is work with your own hands in a way that's good, a way that's honest, a way that's respectable. Paul set the example in this, didn't he? Paul was a what, bivocationally? He was a tent maker. We see that in Acts 18. Just like which couple? Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. They were all tent makers. And it says in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, when he's talking to those that aren't working, before that, even before he addresses this problem, he said, you know, when I was amongst you, I worked day and night. I worked hard, hard, so that I would not become a burden to the church. This was typical for rabbis of that day. Most of them were bivocational. They spent about a third of the day <clears throat> studying the Torah. They spent about a third of the day in prayer. Imagine that. And about a third of the day working so that they would not be a burden on the students that followed them. So what is the effect on unity? So you have the exhortation, the remedy, and then the effect on unity. Paul explains it in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. You see, that kind of robbery then leads to unruly activity and undisciplined behavior in the church when people don't provide for themselves and they don't contribute to the body. The implied problems here, then it causes resentment, and that causes division in the church. When people aren't pulling their weight and other people have to work extra and other people are robbing from the body, it puts strains on the resources of the church and it causes resentment. And then he says, go the extra mile. Now, you might expect him to say, you know, work at respectable things with your hands so that you might, provide money, you might provide food for the mouths of your family. Well, that's implied there. But he says, go the extra mile. Don't just work. He doesn't talk about putting food in the mouths of your family. He then goes straight to the extra mile. He says, do it so that you might be able to what? Provide for those who are in need. So if those of us that are able to pull our weight are doing so in the body, we not only provide for our families, then we have a benevolence fund. 
at the church that you contribute to that helps us to provide for the needs of those who genuinely, genuinely are in need. And then he talks about a second sin. You know, he, does, he doesn't give a catalog of sins here. He only talks about two. These are typical. They're, 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 they're examples. There are other sins that can cause division in the body, but he selects these two. He says a second one is unwholesome words that affect the church, 29 through 32. Don't let your lips utter unwholesome words. The word unwholesome here actually means to be rotten. It's a, a word picture that we get from rotten fruit. Corrupted, a putrefied piece of fruit. Uh, Jesus spoke, spoke about this in Matthew the 7th chapter. He says, every good tree produces what? Good fruit. Every bad tree produces what? Rotten fruit. He uses this word here. Um, it, it, it might also mean not just rotten, but worthless, useless, unfit. And in the uh, Matthew, the 17th chapter, there's the dragnet parable. You know, they, they, it's like uh, the kingdom of God's like a dragnet, throws it off to the side of the ship, pulls it in, and they do what? They take the good fish, and they put it in the container, and they take the, and he uses the same word here. It could be rotten, but I imagine the, the fish that aren't worth keeping and throw them back. It just doesn't have to do with just size. It might be unedible, useless. So, Sometimes the things that we say are just flat out rotten, poisonous. Sometimes they're damaging and harmful. That, that's one meaning. But, but sometimes the words that we speak are unproductive. You know what I mean? Frivolous. Um, distracting. Another word for it is just idle chatter. And I'm not saying that we can't have happy kind of friendly discussions where we talk about things that are funny and talk about jokes. That's not what's said here. But you know, you know the kind of talk that we're, we're talking about here. Gossip sometimes can be very damaging and poisonous and harmful, but sometimes we just get involved in idle chatter, things that have no meaning, that are empty. There are two kinds of, of unwholesome talk then. That which is damaging and that which is useless. And Jesus warns us against that, and so does Paul. James warns, warn, uh, warns us in chapter 3, and there's that whole block, 12 verses, where he talks about the what? The tongue. The tongue is a raging what? Fire. Fire. The tongue can be unmanageable. The tongue is full of deadly poison. The tongue is, he doesn't use this phrase, but you speak with forked tongue. You speak both blessings and what? Curses. So this is Paul's equivalent to the James passage, I think. The remedy is, speak words that edify, conveying grace to the hearers. Verse number 25. The parallel passage, Paul speaks to the Colossians once again in chapter 4. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Okay, out there. Okay. So it's not just in the body but with outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity, let your speech be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Jesus says, we are the light of the world. He also says, we're the what? The salt of the world. So that you will know how that you should respond to each person. So it's not just about how we speak in the church. It's also how we speak outside the church. That's the remedy. The effect on unity, it's implied here. Uh, words that are frivolous, 
And words that are poisonous do not edify. They do what? They, they tear down. It's implied here. Gracious words suggest that the other words are what? Ungracious. And ungracious words are harmful and unkind. They hurt people. But there's an explicit result that's given here. Unwholesome. And this, this, is, a, this is a passage that is so often taken out of context. It says, do not what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, I've heard a lot of explanations for that. One is grieving the Holy Spirit is one thing and quenching the Holy Spirit is another thing. You know, grieving the Holy Spirit is active sins of commission and uh, quenching the Holy Spirit is what? Acts of omission. I've heard a lot of explanations. I think those aren't quite accurate. Take it in context. Well, take it in context of, of uh, quenching the Holy Spirit. That has to do with um, not quenching the movement of God in the body. That has to do with continuing to be joyful. It has to do with continuing to pray. You look at that passage, it also says, don't forbid, a per don't forbid prophecy when it begins. Okay? You don't quench the movement of the Spirit unnecessarily. Here, it's talking about not grieving the Spirit, and that has to do with the way we speak. Think about it. Um, now, there are many things that we do that grieve the Holy Spirit, not just this, but in this context, the tongue is, and the way we speak is what grieves the Holy Spirit. You see, it undermines the unity of the body. And who is the author of unity? Well, take the Holy Spirit is not the author of what? Disunity, ergo, the logic would suggest to me, that who is the author of God's unity in the church? Well, Christ is the central focus, but who binds us together? The Holy Spirit. Un unwholesome work undermines and undercuts the work of the Holy Spirit. It causes confusion and discord. Sometimes unwholesome work, words oppose the very work of the Holy Spirit in two ways. You look at these words that are used here, and they are just the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> it opposes godly wisdom that's conveyed by the Holy Spirit. Opposing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's what? Listen, just, just listen to this again. You know what it is. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You hear that? And now listen to the words that are used to describe what is happening with unwholesome words. Bitterness, extreme wickedness. Wrath, setting your passions afire, boiling over. Anger, violent emotion. Clamor, a tumultuous crowd of a rebellious, a tumultuous cry of a rebellious crowd. Slander, the word there is blasphemy, damaging other people's reputation. All of these are divisive, and they're based on, he says in verse number 31, malice, ill will. Boy, if there's anything that runs against the fruit of the Spirit, it's those things. It also opposes godly wisdom. Look at the contrast when you, when you hear about the wisdom that comes from above in James. The wisdom that comes from above, godly wisdom comes from above is Listen to it. It's first pure and then peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy. Good fruit, unwavering without hypocrisy. And, and the seed of this good fruit, it says here, is righteousness that we sow in peace for those who seek peace. Well, folks, <laughs> unwholesome words don't do that. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. It works against the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And then we come finally to go the extra mile. He, said, he says basically here then, with your words, you ought to edify the body. 
not go in neutral. You know, he says, not only don't use words of malice and ill will, don't go into neutral. Do what? Go the extra mile. You put on the new man. Edify that new man. Edify the body. Since you're recipients of God's grace, be gracious to others. The word that is used here is to be kind. And it's based on the root word, Christos. What do you hear in that? Christos. It, 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 it's just, it, it's not intentional that it sounds like Christ. But I don't think it's unintentional that Paul uses it here. It almost sounds like he's saying, be like Christ. It's a different word, but be kind. And, it, and it's habitual. Keep on being kind, unendingly. Be tenderhearted. Show mercy from the core of your being, coming from the very inner core of your being. Be a forgiving person. And it's a participle used there, which means that you keep on forgiving. How many times do you forgive? Seven times? Seventy? Harkens back to the words of Christ, which is not the normal word for forgiveness. The normal word for forgiveness is a theomy. This is charizomai. It's based on the word for grace. What he's saying here is, don't just forgive in the human way. He's saying, grace others. Go the extra mile. Grant favor upon them. Grace is based on the cheerful gift of God. And that's what he's saying here. Use your words to bless one another and grace them cheerfully. And we'll close with this. Colossians 3, once again, is a parallel passage. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive them. We need to remember in all of this that we've been forgiven by Christ and we are called to that exhortation once again that Jesus reminds us. When we stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that what? Your Father who is in heaven may forgive you all your transgressions. So these are just two sins. There are many others that could be dealt with. But this is all about not just cultivating individual holiness, but also building up the body of Christ. Our prayer ought to be, I think, over the next couple of weeks and beyond that, but especially, let me go back to the original illustration. I know that there are a lot of reasons that people give for why this wasn't dealt with better and more appropriately, you know, in the Can you hear me? Okay. Baptist polity, uh, we don't have a pope over us. We don't have a singular organization over us that controls the way the churches operate and all. And have, with all kinds of reasons why this was not dealt with before. But the fact of the matter is, it has been brought to the light, and Paul tells us how to deal with it. How do we deal with it? We speak the truth. We bring it to the light. We deal with it appropriately. Okay? We do it also how? With charity, with love, with forgiveness. We don't dismiss it. We don't sweep it under the rug. Should we express righteous anger about sexual abuse in our churches? Absolutely. Do we hold on to that to become victims? No. We do what? 
We deal with it forthrightly. We take responsibility for it. There'll be recommendations that will be given on how we deal with it in our churches. We need to take that to heart. We need to put policies into place if they're not there in our churches, and they are in this church, that seek to prevent that. We need to make sure that our children are protected. We need to make sure that whenever we bring somebody into staff or whenever we put a person in responsibility in our church, that we know about their background and their history. Do we do background checks? Absolutely. So we need to do that with vigilance. With I don't like this term. It's a business term, but it's, it's accurate here. We need to do due diligence. We need to be faithful to that. And then when we find sin in the body, what, what do we do? We confess it. We love the person. We forgive the person. But we also are very careful about the responsibilities that we give people after that. Let me say one last thing. You may want to turn it off or not. I have an observation to make, I think, that might be a, a pertinent here. You know, years and years and years and years ago, we had some ways to deal with this that aren't as strong as they are now. Are Baptist churches congregations with a polity where we are responsible directly to Christ and there is nobody over us? Yes. But you know what? We used to have directors of missions at the associational level that pastors went to for guidance. They kind of watched out over the churches. You know what I mean? Usually older, mature, wise ministers. They kind of watched the churches. And when a vacancy came open in a pulpit in a, in a church, sometimes they were the ones that often made recommendations. The church didn't necessarily have to take that recommendation. Well, you know, we are very blessed here in Tarrant County. We have a strong association here. We've got good leadership there. Uh, you know, does David know every church and every vacancy personally, and does he know who the church is calling before they call? No, but they are engaged with our churches. We need to pray for the leadership of our whole convention. We need to pray for the leaders at the executive committee, the SBC, at NAM, IMB, state convention leaders, and associational leaders, that they will be strong in the Lord, they will be vigilant, they will be good counselors, they will monitor what's happening. Brittany's dad is one of these. We need to pray for him as he goes around and as he ministers. And people will have critical questions of these leaders. They'll be put in the spotlight. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that they will be strengthened, not just the church but every one of those entities as we deal with this problem. So put them on your prayer list and pray that the Lord will strengthen our network at our associational level and there'll be more accountability. So that's my kind of editorializing on the, on the issue. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 817- 926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. 
please join us for our next episode.